0: Welcome, Manu, to the Network Capital Podcast. We're doing it in association with Loophole Audio and Plain Crazy. Um, today, we're going to dive deeper into your career choices and what you're up to these days. Thank so you for could, having me. It no, sounds ominous, pleasure. but I look forward <laughs> to this conversation. Um, why ominous? Well, you know,
1: the, this diving deep into career means that you have to end up talking about yourself, which I don't know if that's a
0: virtue or a vice, but we'll, we'll find out by the end of this discussion. Uh, let's see how that pans <laughs> out. But tell us, like, walk me through your career choices who are you that's
1: a tough question to answer in 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 one line but i'm currently a phd student or i'm enrolled for a phd at king's college london i used to be chief of staff to the chairman of the foreign affairs committee in the indian parliament till about a year and a half till 2017 i'm also a writer and historian so i've written three books uh, all of which have done well so far and yeah so i've got one foot or other you know i need an extra foot really to Put into all these three worlds that I've dabbled in, but so far it's worked out, and you know I have no no regrets, and everything seems to be going as per pl- as per my plan. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: How was school and college like? I'm talking about school and undergrad.
1: What were you? Undergrad was in Pune because that's where I grew up, and I went to this old uh, college there called Ferguson College, which has its associations with Tilak and uh, the Rana days of the of the 19th century, and it was this lovely, you know, 65 acre campus, which is a relatively rare thing these days. You don't find colleges like that. And uh, so I did my ma- my bachelor's in economics over there. I did a second diploma in international relations. And once all of that was done, I went off to London to do my master's in international relations at the Department of War Studies in, at King's College London. And yeah, that's how I ended up in parliament working with Because I still remember I was on the way back from London after my master's and in the airport, I was boarding the Bombay flight and he was boarding the Delhi flight. And I said, ah, that man, you know, I'm going to write him an email uh, and ask for an internship because I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, So I came back, wrote him an email, and my CV was pretty empty at that time, but he liked the way I wrote. He liked my email. And then he sent me a message saying, you know, I really enjoyed your email. Come meet me if you're ever ever in Trivandrum. And as it happened, I was going to Trivandrum the next week. So I, I walked up from there to wherever he was. And it was quite a funny scene because he was coming down a staircase. I was going up the staircase and he looked at me and he said, you must be Manu, go up, there's a proper sadhya, like one of those Kerala feasts happening. Mm -hmm. Eat and then come down and then we'll talk. So I went up, sat with a bunch of children and ladies and had this huge feast first. Went down, sat with him in his car and that's how we finally got talking. And within about 10 days I was in Delhi and starting to manage his parliamentary office in Delhi. So that was the beginning of my career with this whole you know foreign policy aspect in parliament and all of that the books were happening simultaneously uh, by then already because my first book i started my research at the age of 19. really so yeah so that was already a thing one of my motivations in coming back to to delhi specifically was because i'd already done one cycle of research in london as a student at the british archives and i wanted to come here and use the national archives so i needed to find a job in delhi and as it happened it happened to be with shashi zarur which was a good combination but yeah, so I ended up j- starting to you know juggle two careers
0: at the age of 21. So you finished you you joined Doctor Thrur at 21, and um, what was the, what was a job like? How did you balance it with writing? you know the beginning the if you go to the office now there's you know two separate
1: sections the team is i think nearly a dozen people it's much bigger there's a congress party related office and there's a separate you know his his uh, international travels and his diplomatic contacts and his speaking and all of that is handled by the other office when i started it was just me and the clerk I and mean, a, a gentleman who's uh, you know middle aged ex civil servant in the in the government and it was just the two of us. So I had I was doing practically everything and it was great fun because I was doing parliamentary questions, I was helping draft speeches, I was managing schedules and things like that, uh, dealing with ministries, dealing with diplomats, dealing with petitioners because they'd call and they'd want support in getting pensions from the PM, uh, one of the Yojanas and so on. So it was a mixed bag of things. So from nine in the morning till nine at night, there was no room to uh, do anything else. You were tied to your desk in that sense. And it was after nine, that I could actually sit down and do my writing, which I do till about three in the morning. Which, you know, people now make it sound like it's some sort of a big sacrifice or big thing I did at that time. But frankly, I was living in his house. So, you know, the MPs have bungalows where there are outhouses. So he'd given me one of those. And I could always see his study light on till three in the morning. And this was a man who'd already published over a dozen books. This was a man who'd been UN Undersecretary General. He'd been minister. He was a member of parliament, a very charismatic public figure. And he was still slogging it out day in and day out. And, you know, waking up in the morning, going to Parliament, coming back, in, uh, having a diplomatic meeting over lunch, going back into Parliament, delivering a speech there, in the evening coming out, releasing a book, uh, going out for a seminar, then coming back and doing his own writing. And I thought if a man can do that with all his success without wasting a moment, if he can do that, then I should perhaps, you know, follow a similar pattern. And it worked because that was the only way I could finish my my first book.
0: Mm hmm. You know there's an interesting concept these days that you shouldn't man- manage your time you should manage your attention you mm-hmm. should manage your energy so when you were doing a 9 to 9 job fairly demanding uh, and unpredictable how did you what did you tell yourself for the necessary focus that was required to be able to write research and i'd love if you tied back to the 19 year old <laughs> aspiring author yeah it wasn't as seamless as you know it can seem in retrospect like a
1: seamless process or whatever but at the time it did come with its frustrations you know your social life does take a beating because you're not going out very much you're constantly wedded to your work and you're in your early 20s that's not a good place to be especially if you're not an introvert and you have no issues being around people it's a challenging thing to force yourself to to, to plot through every day and get through so much work but in one sense i enjoyed working so that was one advantage there and the other was the my book definitely motivated me because i was completely gripped by the story i was completely gripped by my research which is why I started at 19 and you know that I knew that I didn't know what kind of book it would eventually become. But I was definitely certain that this was something I wanted to do. And once you have that kind of motivation for anything in life, I think that that takes on an energy and a life of its own and you become an accessory to the energy rather than you consciously deciding uh, how every day or every month or every year is going to pan out. So all my career choices because after Shashi Zarur when he became a minister I left because you know when you become a minister the IAS officers come in and they take over the best parts of the job and I was 22 so I would have been relegated to third PA or something like that which at that time I wasn't keen on that because I was running the whole show. So then I went back to London, where also I did another cycle of research for my book. Uh, did my gig at the House was of Lords. Was it another
0: master's? No, uh,
1: I was working okay. with uh, Karan Bilimorya at the mm. House of Lords. Mm. Uh, then I did that for a year and something. And then I did this BBC gig. They did an Indian history series called Incarnations with Sunil Khilnani. So I was his uh, researcher for that for a while. Right. Then I came back in 2014, took six, uh, did Shashi election campaign. And once the election was over, I took six months off to finish the book. Mm. And yeah, rejoined him in 2015 uh and yeah
0: that was that yeah you know let's go back to 19 again so what was the idea that gripped you and how did it shape your career choices because it seems like an important element it was you know the the protagonist of the book is this woman called setu Lakshmi bhai who
1: was the last female maharaja of Travancore. and we live in times where you know power animates so many people right and once you have power it's very difficult to let go and even when it's snatched away, people don't know how to deal with loss of power, loss of public profile, loss of influence, because that it takes away something, and you end you end up feeling hollow or whatever. Even today, you have people in India who you know flaunt their royal titles as Maharaja, this Maharaja, that, because you know that era is over, but that still has some value. You still think your identity is tied to something that's already faded and disappeared into the into the night. And here was this lady who became Maharani of Travancore at the age of five. By her teens, late teens, she was already navigating court politics and had made herself very unpopular by standing up for her principles or whatever. Uh, by her late 20s, she was in power. By her late 30s, she was out of power because her nephew had grown up and he took over, uh, completely shunted out by her own family and marginalized. By her 40s, you know, late 40s and early 50s, independence came. So the kingdom she was queen of from the age of five no longer existed. Uh, By the time she was just over 60, the communists came to power in Kerala. So her palace where she lived with 300 servants suddenly had a communist flag fluttering on top because one night the the palace servants formed a union and did that. And in her 60s, late 60s, she takes off from Trivandrum, this place where she's been a queen from as long as, for as long as she can remember, goes off to Bangalore, becomes a complete nobody there and spends the next nearly 30 years of her life in obscurity. And from a lady who had 21 gun salutes every time she entered and left her capital, she goes on to become a grandmother who, when she's cremated, is in a is in a public crematorium surrounded only by about a dozen members of her own family. And for me, this was interesting not only because of the personal journey, because it tells you so much about leadership. It tells you so much about how human beings deal with power, with the loss of power, with ambition, and even the loss of self. Because you were queen, that was all you knew, and then suddenly you've now become nobody, living in a house in a country far away from the land that you once ruled. And how she managed to deal with that loss of power, how she managed to deal with that, really got me interested for for reasons of human complexity as well as the, the power dynamics that were involved. And these power dynamics throughout history, you find that they are constant. There are several things, whether it's our time, whether it was Shivaji's time, whether it was even before. One thing everybody needs is hard power. The other thing they need after that is legitimacy to back up the power. And the final thing is sustaining the power. And power is a fickle mistress. At one point or the other, it's going
0: to slip out of your hands. And the whole thing comes collapsing. I'm always stunned by how much literature and history can teach about business management and warfare. Um, we got to dive deeper in the second part. But tell me more about the 19-year-old. How did you stumble into the story? It is gripping, so I can understand why it fascinated you. But how did you stumble
1: onto it? I was doing a general uh, lot of reading in terms of, you know, history as such, because I, not in school, school was pretty boring, and they, they always destroy history by reducing it to five dates and five empires and Uh, Three big battles. Heaven knows why they do it, but they do it all the time. I I have some sympathy because you see India is such a complicated, diverse country. We're practically a continent, subcontinent really. And trying to condense all of that into a 50-page textbook and present that as Indian history is a very daunting task. So people are tempted to just reduce it to the bare bones and pretend that this is is the grand majesty of Indian history. Uh, But beyond that, I was interested in the story of my ancestors. I was interested in the story of where they came from. And this, you know, took me back several centuries because my mother's family, we're, we're matrilineal, we trace our genealogy through the female line. And all of that got me interested in history generally. And then in the course of my reading in my teens, when I was about 18, I came across this lady. And I was like, wow, this is an interesting story. Why hasn't anyone written a book about this lady? So then I got in touch with the family. And then, you know, once you once you go into something like this, it, as I said, it goes out of your control. And it just became uh, a driving force in my life. And, you know, I was in college I was pretty active there was this old debate society I was the head of the debate society on the cultural committee one of those usual you know uh, things you do in college Mm. if you're interested in in, or you have a slight amount of ambition or whatever and that's your your way of channeling it but this felt like something that was genuinely challenging this felt like something that would that I would leave behind in some way in the sense that you know you may not exist you never know what will happen what your future holds but if you leave behind a book that lasts for a long time and that for me was a strange kind of mix of Wanting to tell the story, but also wanting to leave some sort of a mark as though I'm the one who's told this story. So it's a mix of everything. You know, you refer to how how much uh, history can teach us about le- leadership and warfare and all of that. Why is that the case? Because all of this is human beings, and what are human beings made of? They're made of greed, of anger, of desire, of avarice, of you know, such a bundle of contradictory emotions that nothing that is happening today in terms of broad trends has not happened in the past. Human beings are human beings. They've had the same challenges in different contexts, but the similar, similar challenges, similar impulses, similar weaknesses. And that is something we can learn a lot from. And that is why I, I weave history through human beings. So the historical figures rather than dates and battles. Because once you start discovering them for the people they were, you start realizing that, hold on, there's a lot we have in common, even though several centuries separate us.
0: Yeah. You know, if I were to design a history curriculum, I would uh, definitely design it people-centric like in management you constantly study ceos you study personalities you try and understand what are their leadership principles somehow when you look at history textbooks in order to be objective i feel they try and you know index on dates and facts although they don't even do a great job of that Mm. do you think in future history will be taught differently for example the history project and many other podcasts that you spoke about i think it should be taught differently because Mm. you know it there is a lot it can offer us. It's got,
1: there's so much human quirk even. There's so much human eccentricity in history. You know, there's the kind of records you find, the kind of uh, stories you discover. You know, I, I you were at the launch yesterday and I remember uh, mentioning this anecdote about how I discovered this uh, letter in the from the 1870s of a man who would go on to be respected and venerated in Kerala as the Kalidas of Kerala, great Sanskrit scholar, and the father of Malayalam literature. But in this letter, which he wrote in his twenties, he's talking about smoking weed and enjoying bhang, and I was like, he's like any twenty-year-old kid today. You know, this was uh, this man. It doesn't take away from his subsequent greatness, but this was a man who was doing pretty much what twenty-year-olds did then, and they still do today. And that's that's an interesting way of looking at the past. Suddenly, the man becomes humanized, rather than some sort of you know demigod sitting on a pedestal in this distant history we can't touch he's become human, he's become someone we can connect to. And that is a good way to understand his life and his times and the world in which he existed. And if history is taught like that, then we will be enriched. Because the other thing is, you know, the world they say is polarized now, right? Like everyone says polarized, everyone's turning it into this black and white debate, etc. And we always I think every generation feels like our time is some sort of, you know, major sort of moment in history or whatever. Frankly, it's not you know, the world is going to keep spinning, things are going to keep changing, we're all going to die. And in, in 100 years, we're going to be judged by the future generations or whatever we're leaving behind, which happens to be plastic and ugly buildings. But I have a that, different view about what <laughs> we're leaving, behind. But I see your but, point. Yeah. But you know, there's, we, we have to also learn to not take ourselves so seriously. And one way of understanding that is through history, we take polarizing positions, because we somehow think that, you know, this is what it is. But if we realize that we shouldn't take ourselves so seriously, it's it's more conducive to talk. It's more conducive for debate. It's more conducive for a healthy exchange. There's a lot of that also that history can give us because it tells us that all these people in the past, you know, these people built grand empires, which they thought would never, you know, they they every time they gave royal grants, they said, till as long as the sun and the moon endure. Within th- two, three generations, their empires were dead and gone, and nobody cared about these grants that they'd given because nothing lasts. And understanding that... I think brings a certain amount of proportion and that proportion we lack in the world, no matter what field you look at, whether it's politics, whether it's public life, whether it's even business, it's a sense of proportion. And that history can lend to these larger conversations that we have in our own time.
0: Are you familiar with the Mark Twain quote or the quote ascribed to Mark Twain? History doesn't repeat itself, it but rhymes. it often rhymes. Yeah. So I, I think I've, uh, as, as students in the subcontinent and even at a global level, we miss out on a lot of lessons taught history the way it can be so we miss out the the rhythmic uh, juxtapositions but uh, you know just moving on to to the next segment I want to dive deeper into your writing schedule I want to understand on network capital and in general people want to write people for as long as I've known have always want to leave behind traces of what their thought process is that's why perhaps social media is so popular um everyone has a platform finally everyone yeah. finally has a platform people love to blog in different languages as such in india for example micro blogging you know vernacular blogging is huge people love to express um what is a good writer according to you and how do you, how have you trained yourself over the years now 10 years right yeah, so. yeah it's a decade right yeah. no a uh, uh, good writer firstly i think is unsentimental and
1: unromantic about writing you know it's very we always succumb i think often to this notion that writing is about it's an art and it flows into your mind like some some, some divine genius somehow you know it's just flowing through you and you have to express or whatever it's true partially but the thing is merely expressing yourself is not enough at the end of the day like any other commodity like any other package to use a term that writers don't usually use for this you have to work on it like a carpenter works on his on his on his woodwork with his tools because you have to keep hammering away you have to keep beating it into shape that's the only way your writing is going to improve merely having an idea lots of people have talent why is it that not everybody publishes because that's not enough there's a certain amount of discipline there's a certain amount of hard work that has nothing to do with the art of it that has nothing to do with the romance of writing that has nothing to do with sitting by the beach and thinking that you know you sit there with a typewriter and look over the at the sea and poetry comes to you no it's the it's the grammar and the syntax and the, the hard work of, you know, doing what a carpenter or a cobbler does. You have to do that. There's a lot of hustling that comes after a book is published. You know, it's very... I've, I've seen great writers who write, you know, wonderful books, but we live in times where the book alone is not enough. People want to see the writer of the book. They want to hear the writer of the book. So suddenly public speaking is a is a thing because you have to go out and peddle your book. It's a competitive market. You know, you, you can't merely write a wonderful book and expect that the world will come to you. No, you have to go out and... Peddle it like a salesman peddling goods, and it's unsexy and unromantic, and it takes away from our sentimental notion of what writing should be or what it used to be. Mm-hmm. But writing was always this. So what 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 do you what would writing be? What was it in the past? In the, I mean, even in the past, it was this. You know, look at successful writers, Jane Austen, for example, when she first began. A, novels were considered relatively unaristocratic. They were considered like a pastime and all of that. She had to send them to newspapers. Uh, one of her novels, I think, was published without her name on it because, you know, if they thought a woman had published it, there may be issues there. Uh, she only started making money on her novels towards the end. There's one novel which wasn't published, it was after her death that somebody finally, because she had already become famous by then, they decided to publish it. She took rejection. She took lots of... Things that we face even today, writers, even then back in the day, didn't have it easy. And they had to focus on the craft as much as on the art. Which means what? Putting in the hours. Which means putting in the kind of energy and it drains you, it frustrates you, it's very isolating. But if that's what you want to do, I mean, you have to put your money where your mouth is. Tell us more about the the craft. Well, in my case, if it's a research cycle, which means, you know, archival work in the libraries and so on. So, for example, till uh, late last year, I was in London. Uh, I, I'd done about a fourteen-month uh, research cycle there, where it was literally nine nine thirty in the morning. Get to the library, quickly have breakfast at the library. Which library? library said, was the it? British I Library. I see. All the School of Oriental and African Studies, sometimes Oxford, Cambridge, depends on on where my material is. But if, on a daily basis, I worked out of the British Library, and you get there by nine nine thirty, and then you know you only every hour I'd wake up, I'd get up and sort of go out and, and sort, sort of stretch my legs or whatever. But otherwise, you're sitting till the library shuts at about eight thirty in the library working because that's there's no other there's no getting away from that sort of commitment. Which means that your only break is at lunchtime and maybe at four o'clock for a coffee or something. And the only sentences you utter in days is to the canteen lady. Your only sentence on a daily basis is how much is that coffee for? Or how much is a sandwich for? And thank you. There's nothing else you're talking to uh, anybody. because It's a library, not a, a co-working library. space. Correct. Where everyone's come there to do work. Nobody wants to make small talk and chit chat mm. with you. Mm. So getting into that comes with preparing yourself mentally. It means that you have to accept that you're not going to go out much. It also means, for example, the British library is also open on Saturdays. So, you know, on Friday nights, I pissed off a lot of my PhD colleagues because everyone would go out drinking or whatever on Friday nights, but I couldn't do it because I would mess up my Saturday morning. And I wanted to go to the library and work and library shuts early on Saturdays. So you had to, if I wanted to go to my work, I had to make a call there to make a, a choice there of not going out, of sacrificing a certain social engagement because this was of greater importance. So there is that kind of work. Then, of course, there is the fun. So you compartmentalize. Right? So no, once but let's stay
0: on this and then oh, go sure. to the fun. Why a library and not a co-working space? Depends. So if I'm working in archives and materials, the books are available more easily in a library. They're not available
1: online? Uh, Barely. I mean, now people are starting to digitize things. So a lot of slowly getting to the internet, but still like something like the British library, which is generally called a copyright library. So under the law in, in Britain, any book that's published, there has to be sent. A few copies have to be sent to the British library, which means for centuries, Every book published on British soil is available in their archives. They have this huge central thing uh, made of glass where you can actually see these volumes uh, stacked up in shelves. And it's a huge resource. Books and manuscripts and original palm leaf things that, fr- that were taken from India, which you don't find here anymore, you'll find there. Obscure books on obscure topics on India, I found there rather than over here. Uh, obscure journals that no longer exist in archives here you know they you find you find them in abroad and foreign libraries and there's something called the feudatory and zamindari india which was a, a a newspaper for princely states it covered everything that was happening with these maharajas and nawabs and uh, it was wasn't available anywhere in india i couldn't find it even in the british library and i found finally found it in the new york public library i have no idea how this pertaining to such a niche segment in indian history ended up in new york and at the university of uh, berkeley in california But somehow it did and you know these are the places where you have to actively go and look the writing can perhaps be done from a co-working space in the sense that once your research is done once you've got your facts once you've got your raw material then it's a question of digesting it and putting pen to paper when it comes to that stage all you need is a quiet room and i'm not touchy about my desk or where i am or whatever so long as it's a quiet room i can work out of anywhere Uh, you're never going to find perfect ingredients are never going to find the perfect setting for writing to flow into you. It's not going to happen. I mean, unless you have the luxury to to live like that. I don't think it works that way. Like any other any other field, there's a certain amount of compromise, there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, dealing with reality as it sure. is, and then getting on with
0: your day. So uh, in the, at the British Library, for those 12 hours, you were sitting and consuming knowledge, assuming making notes... Yeah, were all. you also doing writing simultaneously?
1: I do my column, so I have a weekly column that's been running for uh, for two and a half years in Mint Lounge. Yeah. So this, you know, it, a weekly column has its own challenges because <laughs> yeah, and mine is a history column. So right. I can't repeat anything. Every week has to be new. Mm. Uh, so you know, recently one was on political violence in in India.
0: I read that tomorrow's yeah.
1: one is on this Maharashtrian kitchen maid turned poet called uh, Janabai. Mm. Uh, you know, so each week has to be refreshing and different, so that hmm. people retain their interest. Sure. The whole idea is to make history interesting and lively. So I can't repeat my themes too often. So that writing I would do from the library. So the, the columns I could sit and work out of out of the library. But book writing, what I normally do is I finish my research cycle, and then I have a separate uh, uh, period of months and months that is allocated purely to writing. So when I did my second book, for example, which was. Uh, in in London in 2017, end of 2017, for about two and a half months, I think I was chained to my desk in my room, in my pajamas all day long. Only this going was on in London. This was in London. I see. So I did the writing in London. Mm. A lot of the research was done here and in London, but mm. the writing. So yeah, two uh, two months, two and a half months, I was. In my room, in my pajamas. And how many words did you churn out in those two and a half months? Uh-huh. So the first, so the book altogether is 95,000, 96,000 words, I
0: think. So about 400 pages?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, just under, 350, yeah. I think. Yeah. And uh, the first draft is I think, 70-something thousand words. So that got done. The skeletal first draft is always the the heavy lifting. Mm-hmm. Once you've got that done, most of the headache is done because the book has structure by then. Right. You can augment it, you can ornament it, you can polish it. That's the secondary mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. That you can do with other things as well. But the first initial draft is where the challenge really is and that you know you really have to make the time when i was finishing my first book i lost 12 kilos because in the final six months because i was waking up in the morning sitting at my desk and i wouldn't stir till you know dinner time and all i was eating for energy was sugar chocolate because that keep, kept giving me sugar highs and that was how I plodded through every day because I decided that this book had already taken five years of my life and I wasn't going to allow it to take more time so I had to finish it one way or the other by 2015 mm. which meant that you know do or die as gone so was this said. the
0: same time you had the
1: nine to nine job? No, so after the elections in 2014, which Shashi is I uh, took six months off mm. to finish, uh, or, or to, you know, the book in different stages. Some parts of it was in the four draf- fourth draft. Some part, of, some parts of it were third draft uh, sections, etc. So I wanted to hammer out a final sort of version, right. and then most of 2015 till it was actually published, I spent in polishing it, improving it, and we were, I was adding and changing and subtracting right till the day before we went to press, and much to my, my publisher's frustration, but. That's how it works. And yeah, you have know, you to and by then I was back with Doctor Tharoor, So there was that plus editing. Yeah. But you've got to hustle. If you want to get somewhere in life, <clears> you know, there's no there's no romantic answers, I said. There's, everything comes. So for the somewhere. craft,
0: like what I'm hearing is that a lot of hours spent, like you would to excel in any profession. So a lot of hours researching, a lot of hours writing. But you know, in today's world there's so many distractions, digital and otherwise. How are you able to focus for such long periods of time? You pick and choose. So, mm. I don't use Facebook, for example. I, I have an
1: account, but I barely use it. Uh, Twitter is, people just argue and fight and virtue signal all day long. So, Twitter, Twitter annoys me. I just go there for my news. But the other thing is, I use social media for my own purposes, which is that, you know, when I'm stuck in the library for 10 hours, 12 hours a day, my only diversion used to be Instagram. So, I would often, as part of my research, come across miniature paintings and things like that. And these were lovely works, but I also, you know, Since it was my only diversion, I put them up as an Instagram story with a funny caption. And, you know, people started liking that. So that became a diversion. So every two hours between work, I could just open Instagram, do something comical on Instagram and come back to my very serious, heavy lifting donkey's work with the archives and documents and so on. Instagram in that sense helped me balance that out. The frustration that that would otherwise build up from sitting for 12 hours a day in a library quietly uh, was sort of, you know, it was mitigated to a certain extent by yeah. this particular diversion. So I, I used it in, I suppose, a healthy
0: way. A way that worked for you. For me. Yeah. Right? So you I, rather can- than
1: that overwhelming me, yeah. I used it to, you know, uh, to choose and decide how I wanted to expend my
0: energy on yeah. yeah. it. Yeah. So Cal Newport defines it as d- deep work, where you're doing focused work for an extended period of time and not like, you know, coming in and out. Yeah. yeah. So that's the only way really. And you can't, and the other thing is also, you know, a sense of responsibility,
1: right? The question is, how well do you want to do it? Responsibility towards? Towards the work you're doing. How Hmm. well do you want to do it? If you, if you really want to excel, if you really want to do something at a standard that uh, is grueling, but that standard has a certain value because that's what you want to be known for or remembered for or whatever, uh, you know, you have to, you have to focus that way. It's easy to be superficial and it's easy to sort of uh, just, just scratch the surface because you'll still get plenty you can still get by doing that sort of thing but the question is you have to choose do you want to be that kind of writer or do you want to be this kind of writer do you want to be you know a, a person who's known for a sort of rigorous academic research even if the writing is mm. is engaging and accessible or do you want to just be a relatively floozy <laughs> writer so you know my choice was very clear which means
0: nobody else is going to come and do it for me right I have to do it mm. that's true of any profession. When you write, uh, are you familiar with this concept of the invisible audience? Like Everyone, basically, when they write, when they perform, when they speak, when they do their job, um, they have an invisible set of people who they think are watching. Is that true for you? Do you write for yourself, write for that invisible audience, somebody else? No, there is an audience, I think. And even,
1: you know, I have this weird habit where, if I'm, say, plotting a chapter or something, for the first hour or something, I just wake up and walk up and down the room talking to myself in the sense in my head or sometimes even like actually out there because Mm -hmm. that's how your sentences flow. That's how the idea takes shape. And then you can sit down and start writing. Mm -hmm. So there I pretend as though I do actually have an audience and I'm giving a speech before somebody because that does tend to give you a a, a certain amount of uh, perspective. The other thing with writing is that, you know, you can very easily lose yourself in your words, in the sense that you can write and write and write till the cows come home. But is that the point? You're writing to communicate something, which means you have to learn to be concise. You have to learn to communicate that in in, a, in an effective manner. Writing and writing, you know, to satisfy yourself is one thing. But are you writing to satisfy yourself? No, I'm writing for an audience. So knowing that audience is important. The entire final draft of my, my books is usually... so the the early drafts are all what I want to put into the book the final draft is always how is the reader reading this the reader must have every incentive to turn every page and move on to the next so every paragraph has to be sculpted every sentence has to be rounded you can't repeat the same words in a paragraph for example you have to think about that because you're suddenly no longer thinking from the writer's perspective you're thinking from the reader's perspective unless you do that you're not really going to communicate well you can write to satisfy yourself but nobody's really going to read it nobody's going to pick up your book you have to think from the other person's uh, perspective, for which you need to know the other person. You need to know your audience, so the audience matters. It's important to know, uh, you know, who you're catering to and what they expect as well. I'm not. I don't want to write books that nobody reads or that nobody will sell. You know, I want to write books that people will read and people will talk about and which will engage them and which will inform their own debates and discussions and so on. Because
0: what what is the point of this otherwise? Mm-hmm. Tell me about the craft of writing then. Uh, Art of writing, I beg your pardon. Is style developed or is style, can it be improved with practice? It does. Like everything else, practice is is major. There's no
1: getting away from it. You know, there's uh, things you wrote at 20 may embarrass you at 30. Because, you know, that's just how it is. And even a Naipaul, for example, you know, some of his early works, he himself used to find it. Uh, Annoying that he wrote that way or he he wrote a paragraph a certain way. All writers go through that because as you grow as a person, your writing also evolves, your style also evolves. And the other thing with style is that you are nourished by very many influences, not necessarily by a conscious style that you've decided to to pursue. In my case, for example, even though I'm writing about history and my... My research and the footnotes are very academic in that sense. The actual narrative is very irreverent. I try and bring a certain comical element, a certain irreverence to it. Because I told you earlier, you know, I don't want to, us to take our ancestors too seriously, or ourselves too seriously. And that's important. I think that, that perspective is important. Saying that, look at all of this in proportion. None of this ended the world. None of this made the world in some remarkable way. Every it, Everything existed within its own space. That irreverence actually comes from P.G. Woodhouse. Because as a kid, as a, as a teenager, I enjoyed P.G. Woodhouse. And I loved the kind of subtle snark and subtle humor in it. And that always animated my own writing, and that I bring to history writing, which I suppose is not very orthodox, but I think that people enjoy that. People are not expecting to see historical figures talked about in, in an irreverent fashion, especially in, in a country yeah, like especially India. especially when
0: they grew up reading about historical figures yeah. in a very serious way. And in
1: India, historical figures are always pious and proper, and they're all you know monochromatic figures who could do no wrong, mm-hmm. but they were human beings. They did have a, a human side to them, and that is what I want to highlight. So there, the style and the art is is it comes funnily enough from fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, PG Woodhouse is irreverent, you know, uh, comical fiction. Really, that's where it, uh, that influences my style of writing. The other thing is, yeah, it does improve over over time. When I was doing my first book, each chapter was fifteen thousand words to twenty-one thousand words. That's the size of my master's thesis. Uh, so I, I had all the room to to sort of expound my ideas, and the book was a seven hundred page book, etc. But when I started doing my columns, suddenly I had to condense historical arguments and historical stories with all their nuance with all their detail into 1000 words and there's no getting away from it we would have arguments my editor and i over 30 words extra and things like that and there was no budging because they only had so much space in print in the newspaper yeah. so i had no option which is a good thing for me because that challenged my writing in another way to condense 20000 into 1000 to learn to be yeah. able to say things in a pithy uh, non elaborate, non ornamental mm-hmm. fashion, and yet retain a certain vitality, retain a certain energy, and retain a certain spunk in your writing. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it activates a different part of your writing brain or your writing uh, talent or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you know it's important to do that. You it you can never get comfortable either. If you start getting comfortable in your writing because it works, you become complacent. Mm-hmm. Once you become complacent, you lose it. Right. So you have to keep uh, being very aware that you know you have to keep challenging your your work and your writing never really rest on successes of past books. One of the things in writing is also that it's a precarious uh, career choice if you're going full time into it which is that you know you I've had three successful books so far but you never the fourth may flop the fifth may flop the tenth may flop you may have nine successes and tenth one that is panned and reviewed horribly. It does have an impact it does take a toll and it does affect you because it feels you've you know you've dedicated years to something and people criticize it in a certain way it takes away something. right? Mm But you have to be prepared for it. And the only way to sort of stay on top of the game is to constantly keep evolving rather than getting complacent, rather than getting too comfortable in your style and in your art. Everything has to change. Change is that constant. When did you first get published and how? I got published first in 2015. And uh, I was 25. no. I mean, even
0: before school, college. Oh, that way. Yeah.
1: Oh God, I wrote awful poetry as a as a teenager. But that was not. I mean, it wasn't sentimental poetry. I used to make fun of my classmates and call them flying cows and things like that. Which uh, <laughs> I really wrote. I mean, that flying cow poem was really really good. Sadly, I gave it to the person it was addressed to, and she torn it uh, tore it and threw it out. But it was a really funny poem. It wasn't insulting at all. It was just a, a really funny sure. thing. I wish I had it. But, uh, no, I, I never published in newspapers. A lot of my friends, for example, wrote for the local uh, Pune Mirror, for example, you know, the, the local paper and things like that. I was never interested in that. Mm. Uh, when the book happened, the book was it.
0: I so your book was the first time? The book was the first time I was being published. And how did you go about uh, pitching it to the publishers or they reached out? How did this happen? So the funny thing is,
1: uh, in 2012, I got in touch with a relatively small publisher. But at that time... I thought the book was ready, and I'm thank thank God that I didn't end up publishing that here because the book was premature. It would have ended up as a bad book. The fact that I gave it three more years really did change a lot because you know when you're 22, you're still young. 25, you're a little older, so it's a little (laughs) your your work has improved somewhat. Uh, So what happened was it was actually a little bit of strategic thinking, I suppose, which is that I had the email of the chief publisher at HarperCollins in India, Kartika, and I sat up to three at night and send her an email at three o'clock in the morning because I wanted my email to be the first thing in her inbox when she woke up in the morning because otherwise it would go down somewhere if I send it at four in the afternoon it's going to disappear Hmm. whereas if I send it at three in the morning say assume she wakes up at eight or nine and looks at her inbox my email is the first one she's going to see Hmm. the other thing is people often bombard publishers uh, with their whole manuscripts Hmm. and uh, you have to think of it from their perspective right they're getting hundreds of these every day Hmm so I didn't want to send her the whole manuscript I sent her the first six pages mm-hmm. the first six pages were designed in a way to hook the reader really mm-hmm. because the book starts getting heavy towards the middle right. because it's also recording the achievements of this this queen of Travancore so there is a lot of numbers and statistics and facts but that's not the only thing I wanted to draw the reader in and get the the reader invested in this journey to be able to handle the middle so the beginning was this very you know it was even though I say it myself and it sounds imm- immodest it was designed to sort of woo the reader and, and solely sort of pursue uh, them and push them into the book really. Mm -hmm. So those six pages I knew would perhaps impress her. And it worked, by 11 the next morning, when I woke up and really uh, checked my email, she'd already replied saying, send me the first five chapters. Mm -hmm. And then yeah, before you knew it, it was a big publisher, HarperCollins is one of the big ones. Mm -hmm. And I was keen on that because they have distribution and it's important I think sometimes to uh, Brand yourself a certain way. See, I was a 25-year-old non-entity writing about an obscure character, Mm -hmm. an obscure part of uh, Indian history that nobody had heard of and had a 700-page book to pitch. Uh, So I needed a big company. I needed a big name because that's the only way we could balance out the disadvantages I was bringing to the table. To her credit, she took a, a risk with the book because I know that some people in her own marketing team thought that 700 pages is too long. It would have to be priced very high, which means nobody would buy it because in India, you know, prices do matter. She managed to slice off another 100 rupees and price it at 699 rupees, which was still a very expensive book uh, by Indian standards. And it just happened after that. Yeah, so no, we're
0: going to discuss this and it sold so many copies. Yeah. Um, but it seems that you get a lot of work done by sending compelling emails whether it's your first <laughs> job or your first book so this is something that we're taught in business schools all the time in fact venture capitalists receive a lot of pitches as well how did you go about drafting this email to HarperCollins? there was you know I it remember. couldn't have been six pages as an attachment no, it of was course. a
1: short email it wasn't yeah. too long yeah but there was a there was a certain self-deprecation there was a certain humor and there was a certain uh, seriousness also. It's been a while, but do you remember some of it at all? I think you know. There's a. Uh, I think I began saying that. So I didn't say, dear Kartika, you know, here my name is this or whatever. I s- began saying, dear Kartika, if I may, and my apologies right at the f- right up front for inflicting an email of this length on you because you know, a sentence like that immediately yeah. sort of sits out right yeah. people will wonder okay inflicting and you it's you not know. like
0: a regular business boring
1: email right like dear ex. it's box curiosity yeah. Well, yeah. i am admitting up front that i'm inflicting something on you yeah. it's self deprecatory in a way but it's yeah. also it, but it also, also shows your some writing curiosity. style you know i mean to some extent that's the point the yeah. email is the first sample writing sample they're going to see hmm. if that doesn't like, impress then they're not even going to open your attachment yeah that's just how the world is yeah. it's not like they're heartless people that's just hmm. how it is hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I think that was the thing. Which Tharoor, I don't remember what the email said, uh, but he liked it either way. And that wasn't consciously done, it's just that I tend to write emails and letters a certain way. Yeah. Not hard copy letters, but I tend to write emails with a certain amount of uh, focus and all of that. Sure. Uh, short emails, of course, uh, they exist for everyday stuff, but if I'm writing a detail, something with some meaning to somebody, then I invest a certain amount of time in it. Uh, because, you know, in future, once upon a time, writers, their letters, etc., were what people read to understand who the writer was yeah. in our time it will probably be our emails they read to figure mm-hmm. out who we yeah, are
0: yeah yeah so the email matters definitely um so yeah um, she wrote back to you next day 11 and then you sent her your five chapters which were ready
1: and yeah, then then, ready what, by then
0: and then what happened then yeah she liked the manuscript entirely
1: we met in delhi uh, a few months later i think most of it was done over email a contract this happened in december 2014 a contract was signed by february 2015 <laughs> May, I was back in Delhi with Dr. Zarur. So after that, we had face-to-face meetings, etc. And yeah, by the... About what? About the edits and so on. And you know, I had... The thing is, you know, writers also sometimes you can be territorial, right? Like You don't want things edited out because you worked so hard, etc. Especially your first book. You don't understand that editing is actually a good thing because they're bringing a reader's eye separately to the manuscript. How many words are we talking about? Two hundred yeah. and forty-five thousand words. Two hundred and forty-five. Yes, yeah. and I thought I was being very clever because I deliberately left in a paragraph I didn't like because I thought if she insists on edits, I'll say okay, we'll edit this out. I just wanted to leave that extra bit there so that she actually didn't touch anything else that I liked. And yeah, she never actually asked for any major edits. It was that one paragraph and a few light edits here and there uh, for consistency and things so like that. So for
0: two hundred and forty-five thousand, were reduced to what?
1: It was two hundred forty-five thousand words in. in oh print. wow! So it yeah. was you—you—you you, you stuck with it. We stuck with it. Okay. Yeah. And how many copies did you sell? We're in our seventeenth reprint, and I think we've crossed thirty-something thousand copies in three years, which is you know, for a seven hundred-page book, that is uh, a fairly and big largely number. Indian. Yeah, mostly Indian, I think. Although I do assume that a lot of because the book is about a Malayali queen, mm-hmm. and the other advantage I had, and this is you know, that's I think luck also plays a chance, uh, plays a role in all this, which is that. Uh, There hadn't been a book on Kerala for a very long time, for decades really. There were academic books, of course, but nothing in general history, nothing for a larger audience. So my book actually ended up filling that space. So even today, any NRI Malayali mother who wants her kids to learn about Kerala, when they go on Amazon and search for a Kerala book, mine is the first one that pops up. So that was good in terms of that. The other thing is, because it's 700 pages, it also wraps up nicely as a present. Hmm. So I was very thrilled to see that when Hamid Ansari, the then vice president, went to Kerala, this was the book they gave him as a present. Because it just looks voluminous and heavy and very respectable. (laughs) Which is, you know, another good constituency. People buy my book to present it to other people.
0: Is it a book of history? Is it the Queen of Travancore? It's history, it's social history, political history.
1: But all of it is woven through this very dramatic life of this last queen. And her feud with her sister, the junior Maharani. And uh, it's, you know, my protagonist is a woman, the antagonist, in quotes, is a woman, which also was an unusual setting. You're used to male kings and sultans and villains fighting it out. But two powerful women in a matrilineal system where their husbands were non entities uh, is an unusual concept. And I think even Malayalis were startled. For example, in Kerala, the Maharani's husband was not the Maharaja, he was only the consort. He wasn't even dignified with the title of husband, he was called the consort. He couldn't address his wife by name. He had to call his wife, Your Highness. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, they couldn't live in the main palace. They had to live in an outhouse and they could only visit the royal bedchamber when summoned. Uh, a, a great radical event of the 1910s was when the Maharani of Travancore starts driving in the same car with her husband and her uncle, the Maharaja, sends her this very angry message saying, how can you drive with your husband? It, it breaches protocol because the husband is not your equal. He's your subject. He can't be seen sitting next to you because that signifies equality. At, it was so... Like these, these protocols were so entrenched that at feasts in the palace, the Maharani was served four varieties of dessert. Her husband got two, and when he died, how do you know this? Because you know it's it's there. You the, no, tell me, where did you find this? Well, there's something called a the, uh, there's a 12-volume palace manual that governs their life in the palace. How they should slumber, how they should wake up in the morning, how many servants should attend to them, all of that. Uh, plus, there are people who actually lived there who are still alive. There are people, the current titular Maharani of Travancore, who's the granddaughter of my protagonist, she's a 79-year-old lady who, who's a painter and lives in Bangalore. And, you know, she remembers this world because when she, till she was about 10 years old, she lived in the palace. She's seen these splendid household guards. She's seen the protocol of how her grandmother's meals were served. She, her grandmother barely ate anything, but there had to be a dozen things in silver bowls that were put on the tray on a plantain leaf because she was the queen. It wasn't up to her to say, "Oh, I don't like this. I don't, I only want so much food every day." It's not your choice. You're not a person. You're an institution. It's the job of the kitchen staff. 24 cooks. It's their job to serve all those 12 items. Whether she eats it or not is not the point. She is the queen. She's not a an individual woman. Which also that was an interesting dynamic that you know that I found fascinating. This where does your personality sort of eclipse, get eclipsed by the institution that you are or the the larger person publicly that you are. So these husbands were, you know, complete non-entities with these these queens. And that setting itself was fascinating. When Malayalis hear today that they're, uh, you know, technically they don't, I in my family, for example, I technically belong to my mother's family. Mm -hmm. So when my father passed away six months ago, I, in the old days, I would not do the funeral rituals. It would be his sister's family who who do the funeral rituals, his sister's son. He's the heir, not me. Mm-hmm. And you know, Hindus have this thing where when there's a death in the family, you're not supposed to go to the temple for 10 days. There's a ritual pollution that comes with death and birth and events like that. That doesn't apply to the wife and kids. And in the royal family, when the Maharani's husband died, when he's on the verge of death, he'd be lifted with his entire court and taken out of the palace to die because he was not a member of the royal family. He had no business dying in the palace. And his wife and kids, his royal wife and kids, would not attend the funeral because he was their subject. He was he may be their father, but he's a private citizen of the state. So this is India where we think we have one linear tradition and, you know, this is how Indian history was. And hold on, this one sliver of the Indian coast you have matrilineal queens where polyandries are out, where the husband is a nobody, and the women are the ones who have so much control and authority barely learn about it. We barely learn about the fact that divorce was perfectly normal for upper caste people. We'd never learn about the fact that till the 1940s women in Kerala went around topless because toplessness was considered perfectly normal just like men do even today. You go to a Kerala temple to enter you need to take off your shirt even today for men. Back in the day women had to do it as well. You couldn't enter with your, with your torso covered. But you know these things change and very quickly we forget. We forget that we think our morality of today was always the uh, was was always there, that this tradition has somehow come down to us in an untouched, un uh, changed format. But right. it's actually changed very drastically. Mm-hmm. You can go back to Kerala today and tell people that their tradition suggests that everybody should walk around topless, including their mothers and sisters, and people will probably hit you. Mm-hmm. But that was the reality seventy years ago, and that's just how it is. Um, for, for, for
0: This particular book, like this fact you stumbled upon in the British Library or in the palace itself? Because so, this depth of research and the underlying story is just fascinating. And I see it as a common thread amongst all your books. And the first question that comes to my mind, at least, is how, does, how did you stumble on this fact? Were you looking for it or was this something that just jumped up? So out? a good
1: historian or an aspiring good historian would always look at as many sources as possible. So for me, that included the Delhi archives where you know, the Government of India records are kept. The British Archives where the Secretary of State was the British cabinet minister, their records or his copies of the documents that were sent to him, they kept there. Uh, the private papers of assorted viceroys, British residents, British grandees, their private papers also value. So a British resident may say something official in a record, but then he'll write a private letter to his mother where he'll have much more gossip, much more of the actual texture of the story, which doesn't go into an official record. Uh, then there are diaries of these historical figures. This man, as I said, the, the father of Malayalam literature, who I was alluding to earlier, this was a man who wrote great Sanskrit poetry, wrote great stuff in Malayalam, uh, organized some of Kerala's first textbooks in the 19th century for school children. When I discovered this letter from the 1870s where he's talking about weed and marijuana, you know that was a private uh, affair. That's not a state document, but he's written it down in, in his own name. Uh, so you've looked at all these things to get as complete a picture as possible. Plus you interview people who've, uh, who've seen that world, if they're still alive. Because they, the documents can give you the hard facts of history. Interviews and anecdotes bring life to that history. You can you take it with a pinch of salt, but if you compare them and you figure out that you know this thing fits this, then you've understood that where, you, can, you can figure out where there's exaggeration and where there's fact. And uh, yeah, in that case, you know, in that sense, I had her private papers of these Maharani's, of the senior maharani. These official records of the British records of the Travancore government when she was in power and after she was uh, no no she was no longer in power. All of this together gives you this this degree of depth and that you know is important. the The other thing is you know again, we assume that policy is made in these cabinet rooms where people sit and you know judge these things solely on objective grounds. No, even today egos, personality cl- uh, clashes, uh, who you like, who you does who you don't like, what gossip you've heard, all of this informs decisions. You know, the way government will choose who to sit on a who should sit on a commission is not necessarily because that's the best candidate with the best qualifications, but maybe that candidate has the right ideological leanings. That's a personal choice. It's not merely a cabinet room that's deciding this. There are personal elements that come into this. There may be a journalist you ignore because that journalist was rude to you ten years ago, and now that you have the upper hand, you ignore that journalist. That's not politics, so that's not public decision. That's a private vendetta that you've brought into the public sphere. This existed even then. The one funny thing about British imperialism is that we think it was their armies etc that controlled India. It was information. It was solely having information about Indians That is how they controlled the Indian subcontinent. They're the ones who did censuses because they wanted exact numbers. They started doing caste censuses because they wanted to figure out how many people in each caste. Then they said, oh, these many people are Hindus, these many people are Muslims. Till then, Hindus didn't know how many their numbers Mm -hmm. were. There was no concept of Mm majority-minority. Control was exercised that way. By creating that concept, divide and rule happened, for which you need information. You need censuses. You need to go out there and find out. In the royal families, one of the ways they controlled these Maharajas was by completely, constantly spying on their private lives. They knew where the Maharaja was going, who he was seeing, who the Maharani, who whose apartment the Maharani went to at three in the morning in Germany. Everything was watched. How many rats were being sacrificed at a black magic puja? All of this was watched because you control your subordinates by knowing more about them. It's intelligence gathering, and there the private and the personal and the public becomes the line is very blurred. Everything informs everything else, and that's how power actually negotiates itself even today. It's not. It's not people sitting in stiff suits in boardrooms taking the best possible decision. Which is why sometimes on Twitter, when people argue that this is right, you know we should do this because this is the right thing to do. The world doesn't work like that. It works on compromise. It works on consensus. If you want to win something there, you have to give something here. Yeah. It's give and take between political parties, if you want this party to support you with this bill, you've got to support them on the other bill that they are proposing in Parliament. It may not sit with your ideology well, but you have no option because you want their support. with this other important thing, it's constant engagement and consensus and I've seen this in Parliament. Abraham Lincoln was a champion of this. And that's how that's how the world is built. Which is why this black and white thing of the world, I find it very annoying because that, that only comes from living in an ivory tower. If you lived on the ground, you know, people say after this, uh, a lot of ultra leftists, for example, would say the country has changed before our eyes, they're voting for fascists and so on. They have so many reasons to vote. You know, there's, for example, an RSS man in North India will help an old lady go get her old age pension. He will fill the form for her. He will get that done for her. And that is why she's voting for him. It's not because she cares about ideology or whatever. There are various reasons why people vote for them. A number of people who vote for a certain party are not voting for cow lynchings or for people to come and police their daughter's clothes. But why are they still voting? Because there's another reason. There's another something they're getting out of that. And that's how the world works. You can't can't villainize someone for doing politics well. That's politics. And that's just how the world works. So this has always been a constant of, of, uh, of politics, of of writing, of history, that the world is not about who makes the right choices. It's how those choices are reached, and arrived at, and you know how much of a compromise and consensus you can build. That is how the world works, and that I think is, is what my books also try to suggest. That it's not about right and wrong. Even when you look at history, you're not sitting in judgment and saying this was a good king and that was a bad king. No, they all existed in their context, and they all had different reasons and different. Uh, motivations for doing things the way they did just as we have today yeah
0: so the first book led to the column in Mint or did how did did that work out Uh, because I'm looking at the timelines you've been writing it for three years and uh, the first book came out in 2015 late yeah December 2015 so the timing was
1: and the column started in 16.
0: So, yeah, it was actually... So the book th- led to the columns.
1: They I reached suppose, out. Yeah. The book won the Sahitya Academy, Uwapuraskar. Yeah, in 10, 2017, you yeah. were the winner. Yeah. And I, I think what happened with the main thing was they'd sent me Ram Guha's book to review. And I wrote a, a review for it, which I think they liked. And at that time, there was this columnist called Akar Patel in Mint Lounge who was yeah. leaving. And then, you know, the editor, Sanjukta, wrote to me saying, you know, Akar is leaving. Would you be interested in having a weekly column? I said, weekly sounds a bit challenging, but then I thought, you know, if uh, someone gives you a good challenge, you might as well might try and chew on it, yeah. and, you know, and, and
0: make the most of it. So yeah. that's how it started. And I'm pleased to say that I've never missed a column. Kira, so. That's amazing. It Like from your life, it seems that how much do you stick to timelines, routines, again, going against the popular perception that creative people can take their own timelines? You have as much a strict timeline as anybody else. Yeah, I mean, if it's my project, I can be flexible
1: in terms of timing. But where other people are involved, where other people's money is involved, where there are deadlines because something has to go to the press so that it can be distributed in advance to cities yeah. mm-hmm. uh, across the country. That's not in my hands. I can't fiddle around with that. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm getting paid to do something. You know, they are putting their money there. It's my and job fit. to deliver. It's like it's, it's, it's my it's, job it's, to deliver. Yeah. And there, there can be no compromises. So even just now, for example, I'm traveling to promote my third book. And, you know, I've had to do my columns in advance and send them, which is extra work for me because between everything else, I have to find time and write. But there's no point whining about it. That's just how life is. And, you know, if someone's put that kind of faith and money and energy and uh, support into your career, you've got to reciprocate. That's how everybody builds. I think It's a give and take, again. You can't take people for granted. So this whole notion that, you know, deadlines are some sort of,
0: Uh, hassle for good work. Mm. No, actually deadlines, I think discipline you. Deadlines, without deadlines, it's very hard. And you know, I mean, you mentioned uh, before we started that you're now trying to build yourself as a full-time writer who writes all the time. And this is great for you, right? Like having a weekly column means that more people know about you, your work. And then when your books come out, the curiosity will lead to book sales in a way, plus the money that you make out of the column. So you are doing or you hopefully will do very, very well, Well, even from a financial standpoint. Fingers crossed. No, I I tend to plan things. I'm a planner at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And planning, I think, helps
1: because this notion that writers must live in poverty and suffer and all of that is slightly over sentimental. I mean, today's world, if you want to live at least decently not in an extravagant way you have to plan you have to plan your finances you have to invest in the right places you have to make sure that you know you have that basic income <coughs> so that tomorrow if you want to take, take a year off and you know uh, sit and just write mm. you should have the freedom to do it yeah. and that is what i'm aspiring for you know, i turn 30 next year and i you know i've set a goal that by 30 this is the amount of money i want invested in, this is the amount that based on which I have a certain, a short income every month. Whether I spend it or not is not the point. If I'm chained to a desk, I may probably not spend it. But having it takes away a massive amount of tension from your head because, you know. And the other thing is, you know, if you come from families where, for example, you don't have to take care of your parents, they've got their own income, they've got their resources, then you have privilege. Then you have the privilege of being able to do your own thing, so you shouldn't squander it. Because when you have it, use, make the most of it. That's how you grow, because that's how, you know, you, you shape your own future. Uh, responsibilities, etc., will pile up eventually. So, learning to handle that and making the most when you have
0: the opportunity is important. So, and planning is one way to, to go about that. But you know, I mean, I recently stumbled upon a person who takes one year off every seven years. Basically, lots of work. And his philosophy is that uh, if you don't take time out to really absorb, reflect, you will be able to produce. Do you agree with this philosophy? I'm not sure when you've taken time out to absorb and what's your uh, rejuvenation <laughs> my principle? Mine is also highly
1: planned in the sense that, so when I was in London doing my my research on the second book, for example, so I'd work, uh, work, 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 work. What's the say. second book about? You, oh, yes, yeah, sorry. The second book is called uh, Rebel Sultans. The first is called The Ivory Throne, Chronicles mm. of the House of Travancore. The second is called Rebel Sultans: the Deccan from Kilji to Shivaji. Because the Deccan is this space that sort of gets, uh, when we talk about Indian history, we, we focus on the Mughal Empire. And uh, then we focus on the Marathas who came from the Deccan and sort of destabilized the Mughal Empire and took on, and you know became the next big force till 1818 when the British finally defeat the Marathas. But what's interesting is before the Mughals enter the Deccan area, which is just uh, south of the Narmada, you can say, south of Gujarat onwards, but north of Tamil Nadu, that face of the peninsula, that is the Deccan. So before Shivaji and the Marathas, and before the Mughals, there was this huge, interesting set of Persianate Shia, largely Shia Sultanates that were not interested in the Mughal Empire or the Mughal emperor. They looked to the Shah of Iran as their as their preceptor and as their leader. And therefore, there was this huge uh, influx of Persian culture, even in, in a Hindu empire like Vijayanagar. They flaunted Persian clothes. That's what the men and women wore there. There's this famous bronze of Krishna Devaraya, the most glamorous emperor of Vijayanagar, this great Hindu warrior. Who and this bronze is in the Tirupati temple, he's wearing a Turkish hat because that was fashionable at the time. Uh, A lot of art, a lot of sculpture shows the amount of Persian influence that came in because Persia was fashionable. We call it soft power today, right? Where your culture has a certain value and people want to imitate and emulate it. Uh, The Persian language was the language of diplomacy in India till the 1830s because that's just how powerful and influential it was. So this, the second book is about the Deccan. So when I was doing the second book, uh, say I do a cycle of research and work for say three fe- three weeks or four weeks and then I take a week long holiday somewhere else in Europe disappear into Italy disappear into some other place and just enjoy myself there and you know catch up with a friend if a, a friend normally it's a friend who's flying to America for example we'd agree to meet say in Rome or Florence or one of those places spend a week there I'd go exploring or whatever mm-hmm. uh, in my third book do you do any writing when, when you're on these No, unless it's my columns I do my columns because yeah. that is but unavoidable. No, no,
0: no reading writing no. such.
1: and usually in these days when I travel I don't take my laptop mm. I only do what can be done over the phone everything else can wait because this is I mean, as you said otherwise your mind gets oversaturated yeah. you can't try and do everything all at once you've got to get new creative ideas yeah it's wise to also give your brain some time to relax and as someone so what who, is
0: that time for you um, how often do you take a break It doesn't seem like you do very much.
1: No, I do. I mean, I I won't overstate the the amount of work also because what happens is... So recently in May, for example, I took about seven days and went off to Germany. I went to Berlin to meet some friends, which was fun. I mean, I had a conference I attached to it, so I had some formal reason to go. But, you know, I had a a good time for four or five days over there, just doing nothing, just hanging out with friends and things like that, which then by the time I came back, I would head back into my work uh, without any stress because my brain And what work was that? Uh, I think the it's edits the, on my third book. Yes, tell us about the third book, which is called book. "The Courtesan, the Mahatma, and the Italian Brahmin: Tales
0: from Indian History." Yeah, would you where, mind translating this because a lot of our audience are non-Indians; they would not fully get the yeah. words. Yeah, so the 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 title is "The Courtesan, the Mahatma,
1: and the Italian Brahmin." The Mahatma, as you know, most people call Gandhi, uh, a Mahatma, or this great soul who liberated India. But in my world, the Mahatma in the title refers to this man called Fule who was one of the most polemical writers of the 19th century, long before Gandhi went to see the King of England in a loincloth, fully showed up at a banquet where Queen Victoria's grandson was the chief guest, wearing a torn uh, shawl and tattered clothes because he wanted to make a statement that people in that banquet hall were not representative of India and that the Duke would have to come out and look at the streets and the people on the streets to really understand real India. This was a man who challenged the caste system. You know, caste was a very oppressive institution in this country. And uh, the Brahmins, the highest the priestly class, in Pune, where he lived, which was the seat of orthodoxy in Western in India. Uh, They once said that, you know, as per the old scriptures, they were superior because they were born from the head of the cosmic creator. And this man turns around and says, does that mean the cosmic creator menstruated through the mouth? Because he was capable of asking very polemical questions of really unsettling the, 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 the the nobility of the time. And that sort of, I mean, you look into Indian history and I find that there were always people who did this. The notion that asking difficult questions, asking inconvenient questions, that this is something that came with modernity, is not true. Uh, Whether you look at some what we call bhakti literature, which is a lot of poetry couched in divine languages, talking about God, etc. But the wording is about God. There is God and there is a certain amount of devotion in it. But it actually couches very radical ideas. It has strong women characters who were not happy with marriage and husband and lives like that. They left that and they used God to protect themselves. God allowed them to get away from, and talking about God allowed them to get away from the shackles of family, and they managed to do their poetry, they managed to put out ideas that were pretty radical for their time, whether it's the 12th century, the 15th century, even in the 19th century. So Indian history is full of characters like this. It's full of we this notion that all our ancestors were thinking pious thoughts all day long, and they were these you know monotonous, uh, you know, wonderful people who couldn't put one foot wrong. It's again, it's not human. That's not how human beings behave. And that is something I also try to question through the book, which is that all these historical figures had human failings and weaknesses and human quirks. And the Italian Brahmin as well. The Italian Brahmin is a case, an example. You know, we think the Brahmins are this very like proud, untouched, uh, you know, uh, traditional group of people, but look at uh, the Brahmins are the ones who served all the Muslim sultans as their ministers because they understood that to survive, you deal with power, you come to understandings with power. When the British came, they called the British, you know, white people are considered Mlechas or outcasts. They are beyond the pale of caste. So on the one hand, they called them lechas. On the other hand, they were working as gumastas and secretaries and bureaucrats for these very white rulers. You know, so you ritually call them lechas, but in all practical for all practical purposes, you come to an understanding with them. And you realize that if I have to survive, I have to collaborate and I have to get through this. And they had ways of resisting it also. They used to get into the system and then use the system against the colonizer. Right. So Indian history's got these characters. It's got originality. It's got vitality. It's not people who were trying so desperately to protect tradition. This whole let's protect tradition comes from a place of insecurity. Because if you're in a secure, confident place, you're making tradition every day. You're contributing to culture. You're you're not afraid that someone's going to come and you know uh, water down your culture. You're not scared of things. That cultural confidence existed in, in in India until the colonial era, until the Victorians really came and demoralized Indian society across the board. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is something I try to highlight in the essays in this book, because these are, each essay is on an average about four to How five. How is children. this book is structured as
0: essays? How is it structured?
1: It's structured as 61 essays, all mm-hmm. of them illustrated. In fact, there are 65 illustrations, beautifully done by Priya Kurian. And the idea is, you know, at events, for example, where I talk, etc., people say that oh, they found the talk very interesting, but they're intimidated by heavy history books. So this is my effort to sort of build a new constituency for history. So it's got, each essay is about five pages on average. Some are even shorter than that. So this is for that reader who's interested in history, but is intimidated by heavy tomes. This is for that reader so they can pick it up, dip into an essay. After four, five pages, it's over. You can put the book to the side, go back to your regular life, come back and open any page, dip into another so, so essay. So these are not Linked. These are not linked. I see. They are. They. 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 They divided thematically. So they're before the British era and tales from the British era, and then there's finally a long essay at the end, which I call the afterword. But otherwise, you know, it's just uh, a broad collection of interesting human interest stories of you know interesting episodes. Uh, The Kama Sutra, you know, mythology, uh, interesting characters like this Italian who shows up as a Jesuit and as a missionary and decides that he's going to pretend he's a Brahmin and starts wearing the sacred thread of the Brahmins and starts dressing like a, a Hindu monk in saffron clothes. Uh, learns Indian languages and pretends the Bible is a lost Veda. And then <laughs> all of this is happening in the 17th century. Uh, there's this Maratha King Shivaji's nephew. And you will always think that the Marathas were great custodians of Hindu pride or whatever. But this man writes uh, a play where he lampoons the caste system and turns it around completely and with an untouchable woman spouting philosophy and, and dharma and all of these concepts of, in, of Indian philosophy. While the Brahmin is completely besotted and in love with this lady head over heels and only thinking in terms of lust. So there is humour, there is life, there is so much out there that we we could discover and we could learn from. We're doing ourselves a disservice by not doing it. So the third book is for people who have an interest in knowing about the past, but who are intimidated by big books. So this is for you to come in, form an appetite for history, and hopefully the next time you see a heavy book in the library that's on history, or heavy book in
0: a bookstore that's on history, if you have enjoyed this, you'll give that book a chance. You know, there are many commonalities um, among your books, your columns. The one that we are most fascinated by is power. Because power manifests in boardrooms, in offices, uh, in the annals of history. What is power? Hmm. Power is one of those things, right? Everybody aspires to it. But once you have it,
1: most people don't know what to do with it. And then, you know, there's this downward spiral from there trying to hold on to it. And, you know, the understanding power is important to know what to do with it. Power is not the end in its own right. It's means to an end. And that's why, you know, why is it that politicians are always battling over ideology, at least paying lip service? Because at the end of the day, unless you have something to guide you, you don't know what you're going to do with power. You may win elections and you may win power in states and in the National Assembly and so on. But if you don't have some guiding ideology, you're going to have no clue as to what on earth you're going to do with that power. But power is also that one constant in human history. You know, power is the root, I think, of human civilization itself. You know, there's Yuval Harari talks about how fiction plays such a big role in, in human society, which is, you know, if you think in the Indian context, a Malayali who lives on the southwestern tip of India, what does he have in common with a Kashmiri far in the north, with his light eyes and fair skin, and the Malayali has a completely different appearance and a different lifestyle and a different religion and a different way of life and, and, and food habits and everything. How do you make them fight at the border as Indians? you have something called nationalism. And this is, on on an academic or an intellectual level, nationalism is a fiction. The other big fiction we have is currency. It's not worth the paper it's printed on, but we've all agreed to this fiction that this particular paper means 500 rupees. This particular paper means 2,000 rupees. It's fiction. It actually has no value. But because we have agreed that it has value, it has value. It's on the basis of various fictions that power survives, that power builds, builds itself on ideology. It builds itself on fictions like this. Because at the end of the day, human beings are creating societies and creating things. This human appetite to leave something behind motivates us to seek power, to seek uh, some sort of uh, advantage or influence over other people because we want to shape something. We want to leave something behind. But power is also, especially in the context of Indian history, it's a constant because it also goes along very strongly with violence, you know. We now assume that now we have institutions where you know people fight it on largely in assemblies and halls and they may throw things at each other and throw paper planes and behave in a, in a rowdy fashion. But that's really far more civilized than what things were even till in the 1870s when the British were still blowing people out of cannons because that is how they wanted to project their power. They knew they were foreigners in this, in this country, in, in an alien country. How do you sustain power? First, you have to get the hard power, which is the military aspect of it. So you corner territories, you corner manpower, you corner economic resources. But that's not enough. You need to have legitimacy. That's the other side of power. You need to find a way to justify why you have the power. So they come up with this notion of we are here to civilize India. So what do you do? You start making all the pagans of India look like they lost in the, in the Stone Age really with their, with their cults and their, you know, sort of millions of gods who are, and the gods themselves, and they don't have books and they don't have uh, a single sole source of authority. They're all over the place. And it says, you guys are still stuck in some primitive stage. We're here to civilize you. That gave them legitimacy, at least in their own mind, that, you know, we are going to show you how to live. Today, we, we need legitimacy that comes from the Constitution. You know, all of this legitimacy is the other side. So the British, for example, they would blow people out of cannons because occasionally to sustain their power, they had to make a demonstration of violence. Because unless you demonstrated violence, the edifice would come
0: collapsing when very quickly. What time period are we talking about? 1870s. 1870s, yeah, the British blew off. The 18, in
1: 1873 to be exact, I think, there was a rebellion somewhere, not sure if it was in the Punjab, but somewhere up north. And one of the methods used was yeah blowing a person out of a out of a cannon. I mean not literally out of the cannon. They tied to the mouth of the of the mm-hmm. gun and uh, they basically. So it isn't it. just a comical image. I've no seen this in asterisks. No, it's not. Yeah. It actually happened as yeah. recently as that. It's not even that long ago. Mm-hmm. 150 years is not <laughs> very long ago. And uh, legitimacy, you know, I often give the example of this Malayali king called Martanda Varma, who in the 18th century he founds Travancore, this Hindu state of Travancore. First, he needs the hard power, so he has to conquer territory. For that, there's nothing Hindu about it or nothing orthodox about it. He gets his weapons from the East India Company. He gets a Dutch prisoner of war to start training his troops in the military, Western fashion. He gets mercenaries from Tamil Nadu, so he's conquering Malayali territory with foreign soldiers. Once he's conquered, he's got his hard power. He's got his you know power entrenched in these societies. But he's still an invader. He's still an outsider. So the next thing he needs is legitimacy. So then he discovers God. So, one day he goes up to his tutelary deity in the temple and he lays his sword very ceremoniously at the feet of this deity and says, I surrender my conquest to you. What a spiritual act. I'm hereafter. I'm only going to rule this kingdom as God's regent on earth. Very convenient because suddenly, you know, till yesterday you could criticize the king for his policies. Now you can no longer criticize this invader because suddenly everything is God's property. So, how can you criticize God? This is an orthodox era. People won't criticize the divine and the almighty. So, very quickly, through a strategy, he legitimizes himself by donating his kingdom to a God and ruling in God's name. Then he creates this court culture and this whole protocol to dignify the throne. And this you see across the world, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Russia, you know, this building of protocol, because that creates a distance between your nobles and you. You start becoming special, royal blood becomes special. So power is sustained not only with legitimacy, but also creating a certain romantic distance. The king is no longer a human being. He's some sort of special person and you have to worship that. Why do they do it? Because they are aware having one power the hard way, they also know that somebody else with the hard resources can do the same thing. They can come swallow you up, use legitimacy, create a new narrative and last for the next 200 years. Knowing this means that you have to keep reinforcing power every day with legitimacy. Every day with at least the appearance of legitimacy. There are great Dictatorships in the world where they have this this they feign and they have these fake elections where you know people win with their ninety nine percent. The famous story of there's <laughs> a famous saying of Bhutto in Pakistan, where he won one of these rigged elections and he was very embarrassed that they hadn't had a, they hadn't projected a more realistic margin of victory by giving him such a large victory. It was very obvious that it was rigged. So he said you should at least have left some gap between my victory margin and the total because. The, we could have pretended it was an actual... Uh, he actually uh, said it. And there's, it. It's an apocryphal tale, but it's very right. likely because he won by this completely impossible majority. So it was rigged, and it was very obvious it was rigged. And this happens in African countries and so on even today. But you need that smokescreen of legitimacy. You need to feel like it's happening in Turkey. You need elections. You may be the only candidate in Russia. You may be the only candidate. All other candidates are handicapped by by various constraints that you inflict on them. But you need that election process to happen because your legitimacy comes from it. So what, what interests me is not just power, but that constant yearning for legitimacy to make it look like you've earned your place and that power is justified. But at the end of the day, as I said, most people, once they have the power, they have no idea what to do with it. And that is the ultimate human failing. This is that attractive good that's put out there in this in this tower and you're told that you must go and find it and put get your hands on this great gem and this great jewel. Once you've had it, once you've got this sparkling diamond, if you swallow it, you will die. You can't wear it on your head and walk around. What is the point of it? That's why most people stumble.
0: Yeah, I know we began this podcast with you calling Power-O a fickle mistress. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Yes. And we're ending with such a profound note. You know, this is applicable and I see it every day in business settings. How fickle power can be. Um, you know, we'll do a longer... Deeper dive on this... this has been fascinating, Manu. I mean, one of the goals for uh, for this Network Capital podcast is to essentially bring people from all walks of life, all political spectrums, all social spectrums, and talk about their career choices. Because just sharing this um, would leave others with insights. So many of us want to be writers. And I don't know if you agree that you're an entrepreneur in the making as well. Your product <laughs> is your book. You sort your product market fit with your audience. You know, as I said, I'm not one of those romantic types who takes offense at these words. Some
1: writers will, you know, completely find it, a, they find it ghastly to be referred to as entrepreneurs or whatever, but it's true. At the end of the day, this is, the world is a marketplace. Yeah. And there's no getting away
0: from that. Can, Even exchange of ideas. Yeah. There has to be a demand, there has to be a supply. And at least on Network Capital, we are always interested in the interconnectedness of knowledge, people. So it was fascinating going from international relations, <laughs> to politics to policy to writing uh, this has been fascinating we'll do a follow-up soon thank you Manu. thank you for having me yeah.